If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. Matthew 15, 1 to 20. One of the great reformers, Martin Luther, was condemned as a heretic, as his predecessor, Jan Hus, had been. Hus, who, whose last name means the goose, believed in the authority of Scripture. They believed in the authority of Scripture over the authority of the Pope. And he was thereby condemned by the Roman Catholic Church as a heretic, and he was executed. And it lit the spark of the Reformation. And as he was killed, he said, you might kill the goose now, but from the ashes will rise a swan in a hundred years. About a hundred years later, Martin Luther nails the 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg. Martin Luther was charged also with being a Hussite, following after the testimony of Jan Hus, who again believed in the authority of Scripture over the authority of, po- of the Pope. And Martin Luther confirmed, yes, I am a Hussite. On April 18, 1521, Luther stood before his papal accusers and was read the titles of 25 of his works. And then he was asked to recant by the Roman Catholic Church the so-called heresies that were contained within his works. And Luther was quoted as saying, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for, by, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. Amen. We're beneficiaries of the Protestant Reformation, where people bled and died. They faced courts and tribunals. They were persecuted for the translated and written word into the language of common, everyday people so that we might sit with it in our laps and read it. They were persecuted for the word of God that we now freely preach from, that each one of you have a copy sitting on your lap, and many versions probably on your phone because of the work and the testimony of these men. Unwilling to compromise to the traditions of men. They're unwilling to compromise the Word of God for the traditions of men. Central to the Protestant Reformation was a question of authority. By what authority? By whose authority? Are we to live our lives? Are our lives to be governed? Is it the Word of God or is it the traditions of men? Well, the original reformer, Jesus Christ, in our passage this morning encounters a tribunal of popes. But this time they're called scribes and Pharisees. Let's look at our text this morning, Matthew 15, 1 to 20. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? 
for they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrite. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to, to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we require your spirit to understand. Help us to understand the word that we've just read. Preach a better sermon to your people than I ever could. We depend on your spirit for interpretation, for understanding, and just as important for application. Help us to apply this to our life that it may not just be vain academic exercises, but that we may actually be changed having encountered you through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew has left us several clues in this gospel thus far about the tensions that are rising between Jesus and the governing authorities. Now, you may remember all the way back into chapter 9 where Jesus healed the paralytic. And as the paralytic is brought to him just before he heals him, he says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And, it, and Matthew tells us there that there were scribes nearby that thought in their heart. They, they said to themselves, it says, that Jesus was blaspheming. And we don't know exactly what that means, but either they muttered it under their breath or perhaps they said it in their heart that, hey, he's a blasphemer. But Matthew tells us that Jesus knew their thoughts. He climbed inside their head. He knew what they were thinking. 
And he called them out for the evil thinking in their hearts that would accuse him of blaspheming. But then just a few verses later, Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees this time, it was the scribes last time, but then it was the Pharisees who go up to his disciples and they ask his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard this. He overheard it as they're talking to the disciples and he confronts them about it. And he says to them, those who are uh, uh, well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So we, in chapter 9, we have two confrontations there from religious leaders in the area, but neither of them are direct challenges to Jesus. Both of them are very indirect. One is a thought within the heart of the scribes. Another is a question posed to Jesus' disciples. But then in chapter 12, Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain fields and they pluck a head of grain and they eat it uh, on the Sabbath day. And the local Pharisees approach them and they call Jesus out on it. So this time the, the challenge is directly to Jesus. Now this is the third time the confrontation has come. And each time the confrontation comes from the authorities, it gets progressively worse. Now, you remember a couple of weeks ago we saw where Herod the Tetrarch puts to death John the Baptist. And word comes to Jesus that Herod thinks that Jesus and his miracles is evidence that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. And that he's coming back to haunt him from the grave, essentially, because he's cut off his head and he's coming to pay him back. And so the... the Local political authorities are also very aware of Jesus, and tension there is on the rise. But you see, Jesus doesn't back down from them, which is kind of awesome. In fact, today, he's going to make some statements that are absolutely shocking to his disciples, that absolutely confound them. But there are two things that I want you to see in this text that Jesus states or that Jesus implies first is that the word of God should govern the affairs of God's people. The word of God alone should govern the affairs of God's people. The authorities are mostly known to us in Matthew's gospel as scribes and Pharisees. Occasionally the Sadducees appear as well, but mostly it's scribes and Pharisees, which we see especially appear in this passage. And so the scribes, just to understand who they are, they're essentially experts on Jewish life. Scribes are absolutely experts on Jewish life. Sometimes they come to us in the gospel and they are low-level authorities in the area, just uh, very much experts or studious on Jewish life. And sometimes, as is the case here, they are very high-level judges that are located in the city of Jerusalem, in and near the temple. Often they got their... their uh, provisions, their, both their meals and their, their money from the temple, much like the priests would. Um, they had a lot of interchange with the temple and were authorities on Jewish life. Now, the Pharisees are a lot more like a political group than anything else. 
Now, these Pharisees come from Jerusalem, so they're a little bit higher on the totem pole and probably make their living by being Pharisees. But in general, the idea of Pharisee and Sadducee was a lot more like a political ideology. So a lot more like, if I could compare it in today's modern political climate, like a Republican or Democrat. In fact, Pharisees uh, often see themselves as more conservative, a more conservative group, trying to conserve the teaching of the law and the Torah. And the Sadducees were a little bit more liberal and progressive in their interpretation of the law. So it's, it's somewhat a, a comparison of Republican or Democrat. And just like a political ideology, you don't necessarily have to make your living under that ideology to be considered a part of it. So some of you might vote straight ticket one way or the other, and you would consider yourself a part of that party, even though you don't make your living by that party. And so it's very similar here. But these people are obviously higher up on the totem pole, and they are authoritative. So this is the fourth confrontation so far in Matthew's gospel with the religious leaders, and each time it has gotten more serious than the time previous. And all this is building toward, of course, the final conflict that we well know, which is the conflict that G- where Jesus is going to be crucified, in which... Those that are the political leaders and those that are the religious leaders are going to join forces to crucify him in the public square. Well, now Jesus has obviously gone viral because some of the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem are now coming to check him out. Now, this might be the fourth confrontation in the gospel, but it's the first confrontation of people specifically called out from Jerusalem that come up there for the express purpose of checking him out. Now, this is a pretty big deal. Jesus has effectively gone from being questioned by Barney Fife before to the FBI. Now, for those of you who don't know who Barney Fife is, just Google it later, okay? You're in for a real treat. Uh, so this is a pretty big deal. Now, it's obviously not an exact comparison, but the scribes and Pharisees in Jerusalem are going to have a close association with the temple, and they're going to have a greater authority, they're going to have a greater prestige, honor, respect from all of the people that are there in the congregation. So all the people that are gathered around Jesus know that these individuals who are questioning Jesus are a pretty big deal. And immediately as the, peop- as the authorities are gathered around, they notice an infraction. And they come to Jesus in verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, they ask about his disciples. But they're really asking about Jesus' own teaching. I mean, a disciple is not above his master. The disciple is getting his teaching and his practice from his master. So what they're really asking is, why are you teaching your disciples that they don't have to wash their hands before they eat, which is in blatant contradiction with the tradition of the elders, the elders being those higher authorities in Judaism that are responsible for carrying on traditions to the Pharisees, And probably to the scribes too, the tradition of the elders is tantamount to Scripture itself. If you're willing to compromise on the traditions of the elders that we hold so dear, then you're willing to compromise on the very foundations of Scripture. You're willing to compromise on the law itself. Now, this has almost nothing to do with germs, all right? 
I can sense the germaphobes in the room thinking to themselves, I'm kind of siding with the Pharisees on this one. I mean, we probably should wash our hands before we eat. I mean, Jesus, they kind of have a point. See, the rabbis and those that taught the law saw the hands as busy things. They were always touching various things. They were always, you're, you're not always cognizant of what you lay your hand on, not always thinking about what you're touching and things like that, not always thinking about those kinds of things. And so during the course of a day, you might encounter and touch and hold all kinds of different things. Now, Mark in his gospel clues us in a little bit more to the idea that Jesus is talking about or that the, the Pharisees and scribes are talking about. So in Mark 7, 4, he says this, when they come, that they meaning the scribes and Pharisees and the Jews and people that hold to the traditions of the elders, he says, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So in the course of day's activities, you might touch uh, something in the marketplace that perhaps a Gentile touched. Or you might lay your hand on something that, unbeknownst to you, something unclean had laid on before. Now, if you can be declared ceremonially unclean by the eating of pork or of shellfish or of many other things, for example, then what if you touch a surface that had that thing unclean on it before. And then you take that hand and you take a piece of kosher food and you put it in your mouth. Doesn't the defiled thing that has now transferred to the table, has now transferred to your hand, has now transferred to the kosher food, and has then transferred to your mouth? And the jummerphobes all say, Amen! <laughs> right? So, you can see the reasoning uh, that would, they would apply that this would make one defiled before the Lord. Now, the question then is, do the disciples, and thereby Jesus, have such a disdain and a lack of integrity for the Word of God that, they don't care, that he doesn't care that his disciples could potentially be violating the very Word of God by putting into their mouth something that is unclean? and thereby making themselves unclean. It seems that the Pharisees and the scribes, that as they look at what Jesus is doing, they think that Jesus is playing fast and loose with the regulations of the law. Why wouldn't Jesus want to take every precaution necessary to ensure that his disciples aren't defiled before the Lord? That they're holding him to the standards set by the elders as a way of guiding the community of the Jews into truth, they think. But Jesus is having none of it. And you'll notice he doesn't really answer the question directly. Instead, he just punches back. Which I gotta love, to be honest with you. Jesus' counterpoint here is that the Pharisees and the scribes have exalted the tradition of the elders over the commands of God. Not specifically, he doesn't mention at least in the washing of hands, but the traditions that they apply in other areas. 
So the problem is specifically revolving around the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. And it seems in this text that at odds with one another is God. If you look in verse 4, he says, God commanded. But then in verse 5, he says, but you say. So at odds with one another from the outset is God versus the teacher's in Israel. So the problem is specifically revolving around this fifth commandment. And the question is, if the two are at odds with one another, that's not a good place to be in. So we'll see what happens next. The Jews have developed this tradition that they call korban, which basically means someone could make a vow to the temple in Jerusalem. They could make a vow to the temple in Jerusalem, and they could basically uh, leave all of their money to God. So from the outset, from the beginning of their, of their, I guess their life as an adult, if you will, they could make a vow in the temple where they could dedicate everything that they've got when they die will all go to the Lord. It will all be handed over to the temple. And so when they make this vow, there's no going back on this vow. This vow, once it's committed, has to be fulfilled. So then, because of the vow, they're able to use their money during their life for all of the needs that they may have, but anything extra beyond that goes into the coffers to be saved for the end of their life, presumably upon the day where they die, all of the money that's in the coffers then goes to the temple and it is left for the Lord. Now, when a freeloader in a family comes and asks me for money, then all that person has to say, I'm sorry, whatever you would have gained from me is dedicated to God, is Corban. The problem is that there is no 401ks to speak of. There are no IRAs or Roth IRAs. There's no retirement funds. There's no annuities. There's none of that. Children are the parent's retirement fund. The more children a person has, the less of a financial burden that person is to his family. So the children share in the responsibility of taking care of their aging parents. And so this is what Jesus says, at least in part, is what it means to honor your father and mother. Well, the temple has taught and has even encouraged the people that this vow that they can make to the temple essentially negates the fifth commandment. Don't you know what God really wants from you? Don't you understand what God really desires from you is to take all of that money that you've got and give it to him? Don't you know the height of religious zeal, the height of demonstrating to everybody that you really are on God's team, the height of piety would be to take all your wealth and to give it to the Lord. Don't you know that surely the Lord would rather you do that than take care of the lowly and despised, especially your parents? Unless, of course, he has told you exactly how he wants you to serve. In which case, to do otherwise is sin. 
But this is the worst kind of sin because it's sin that on the outside looks like piety. It's sin that on the outside looks like righteousness. Don't you know we're really trying to do what's right? But on the inside, it's blatant neglect for God's word. And he calls it sin. This is what it means to elevate tradition over the word of God. It's disobedience to what he actually commands in favor of, but this is the way we've always done it. This is what it means to not only neglect the word of God, but as Jesus says, for your hearts to be far from God. For you to acknowledge Jesus with your lips, but then to, for your heart to be far from God, is to take the traditions that you've always adhered to that look very pious on the outside and have a funny way of actually negating the Word of God on the inside. God's Word is clear that Scripture alone, not traditions or the voices inside your head, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The Word of God alone. And why is the Word of God of such importance? It's because the second thing that I want you to see, only the Word of God can transform the heart. Only the Word of God can transform the heart. So Jesus pulls the crowd together to explain to them what he means, and he it seems as though the Pharisees can still hear what he's saying. So he's diffusing the poison of the Pharisees right there in front of the Pharisees. They're privy to this conversation, it seems, as they're standing around. He tells them in verse 11, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that this defiles a person. Now, Just take a moment, a second. Just think. He's talking to Jews. They live most of their life by what they cannot eat, what they cannot put in their mouth. They've lived their lives, their whole lives, never eating bacon. I know. So imagine what this sounds like when Jesus is up there saying, that can't defile you. And he's saying it when the Pharisees, who have just accused him of not washing his hands, now Jesus steps out on the limb even further and says, guess what, all those food prohibitions, none of the food that you've been told you can't eat can defile you. Now it's obvious that the Pharisees can hear him because in the next verse the disciples turn to Jesus, and I like to imagine them kind of putting their hand up in front of their mouth going, Oh, man. Are you looking at the Pharisees? Because they are mad. (laughs) They did not like that at all. Now, put yourself in the shoes of the disciples for just a minute. When the disciples are hearing this for the first time, they're hearing this as a refutation of the scribes and the Pharisees that are coming from Jerusalem. So the disciples have a deep and profound respect, just like the people around them do, for these Pharisees and the scribes from Jerusalem. And really anyone of esteem, but particularly those guys, odds are they've never had a conversation 
with these scribes and Pharisees, though they've probably seen them a number of times when they've gone to Jerusalem, but they have sort of been represented as this pe- these people in authority. These are sort of the big leaguers, if you will, which is why Matthew calls them out as people from Jerusalem. This is a big deal. So these are important people, and the disciples are most likely very concerned that the person that they've been following is being rejected by the religious authorities that are not happy with what Jesus is saying. So at this point, the disciples have the mind of a revolution. They think that what's going to happen is Jesus is going to join forces with all the Jews. They're going to oust the Romans. Jesus is going to be king over the land, and everybody's going to be happy. This is really the first time, at least in this gospel, that they're finding out Jesus is not a revolutionary. He's a renovator. He's going to strip this whole thing down to the studs and totally remodel. This is really the first time they're seeing this. That he's going to make all things new. So the disciples say this to Jesus. (laughs) And Jesus... (laughs) Shrugs it off and he calls them blind guides who are leading other blind people into hell. Look at what he says in verse 13. Every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Now that may not sound familiar to you, but that word rooted up comes straight from a parable that we read before. In fact, in chapter 13, not only is the parable of the weeds where that word is located, but all of chapter 13 is just latent with harvesting imagery all throughout it. But remember in that parable specifically that there's someone that comes along and sows seeds in the field of the master. That Jesus says, that seed wasn't planted by me. That seed was planted by Satan himself. And the the people that are with him, his workers, say to him, "Do do you want us to go and you want us to pull up all the weeds? And he says, no, lest you actually grab some of the wheat along with the weeds and you root up all of them together. I don't want you to do that. Just let them grow up together. So here he's saying to the disciples, calling back to these parables, that the Pharisees and the scribes are not planted by God. The implication then is they're planted by whom? Satan himself. See, evidence of their not being planted by God is that they don't govern their lives by the word of God, but by the tradition of men. They're weeds in the field, and they're going to be rooted up. The implication then is that they'll be gathered up at the end of the age and thrown into the pit. And likewise, all of those who follow follow after them, who elevate traditions of any kind over the word of God. Do you understand how mind-blowing this must be for all of the disciples to learn that the people that they had considered their friends, fellow Jews, are actually, according to Jesus, enemies? And then later in the book of Acts, to find out as the Gentiles come to faith, the ones who they have spent their whole life calling enemies, the Gentiles, are actually included in the providence of God. So Peter comes to Jesus and says, time out. 
you're going to have to break this down for me. How does all this work? But the issue here that Jesus is driving at is that the central problem that we're dealing with is a heart issue. So Jesus is making it plain here that the heart of man is evil. And from it comes corruption. And this is all men that he's talking about. There's no exception but himself here. And he's saying that it's not the external things that corrupt you. Even in the case where there are immoral things in the world that you can partake in, there is a fallen heart inside your chest that desires those things, and that is the problem. But what Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees and the scribes for here is that they have sought a remedy to the solution that is outside of the Word of God. And they've sought to heap tradition on top of the Word of God as if it is going to insulate people from transgressing the Word of God. See, if we just provide some tradition around it so that when your hand touches something, you can wash it and then you won't be defiled... It makes sense, then you won't be violated, you won't be defiled before the Lord. This tradition, see, what was really, what really happened is the Bible was just, the Word of God is just lacking. If God had thought of these things, then He would have made these kinds of prohibitions and, and we would have been fine. But what Jesus is saying is that sin has already penetrated the defenses. It's already made its way in. Sin is an inside job, not an outside job. It comes from the heart and your desire to pursue things that ultimately lead to hell. See, the solution is not traditions built to safeguard against sin, but the Word of God built to expose it. It's only the Word of God that exposes the wicked hearts for what they are. It's the command, honor your father and mother, which is the Word of God that exposes the sin of the vow that they're taking that allows them to keep all the money, spend it on themselves, and then give it to the temple at the end. It's the command, honor your father and mother, that causes the conviction on the inside to say, wait a minute. I'm defiling the Word of God in order to do this. It's the teachings and commands of Jesus. If anyone lusts after someone else, he or she has committed adultery with this person already. That exposes the number of times that we're guilty of adultery in the course of a day. It's the Word of God in verse 19. Out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander that immediately draws our attention to the enemy within our own chest. 
It's the word of God that draws us in and exposes all of our flaws and leaves us in utter desperation saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And it's also the word of God where the answer comes. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The beginning of the Gospel of Matthew tells us plainly that Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. And in the scope of human history, man has sought to take the word of God and usurp it with all kinds of traditions and false teachings, which is another form of traditions. And if you notice, every cult out there, every false religion, everything that they're going to do is add another book that you need to read. All of them are going to give you a second book. Mormons, the Book of Mormon, several other books as well. Jehovah's Witness, you need the real translation of the Scriptures, the Watchtower edition. The Quran for Islam. Many other religions, every other religion. All of them are going to do two things. They're going to take the word of God and they're going to seek to usurp it by a book of greater authority. And the second thing they're going to do is try to undermine Jesus Amen. by calling him something different than what he really is. But all it ends up doing is undermining the right understanding that it's in our own hearts that we see that we are sinful and it undercuts our need for a savior. Every single one of them are going to have to do that. But when we look deep into the Scriptures, we can't help but see that we stand before God as guilty of transgressing, transgressing His righteous standard. But in the Scriptures, we also see this perfect figure coming forward. In Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life and yet took the punishment that I deserved for me. Yes. And it tells me in the Word of God that the only way to salvation is through faith in this One who not only was crucified for me in place of me, but rose from the dead as well, promising that those who follow after Him in faith and obedience will also be resurrected into eternal life. We were in China sharing the gospel with a number of people, and we came to a college. We played basketball. If you've never had the opportunity to play basketball with some of the Chinese people, they love basketball, and they're really good at it. And they think Americans are supposed to be, and we were not um, at all, and they beat us like a drum on the basketball court. Afterwards, we gathered them all together, and we asked them if we could... Uh, in exchange for playing basketball with them, tell them a story. And so we sat down and we uh, told them the gospel message. It took about 15 minutes or so. And after a while, some of them had peeled off and gone away. And one young man was left behind. We named him Philip. Uh, we always give him nicknames so that we can remember which one we're talking about when we go back and debrief later. But we named him Philip. And so Philip is standing there in, in front of us and... He's listening intently to every word that's being spoken. After the presentation is over, 
The missionary asks him if he has any questions. And he pauses for a moment and he says, I have heard every salvation story there is. I've investigated every religion. And all of them tell me in their book that I can improve myself and reach a level of holiness. This is the only story I've ever heard that tells me the problem is me. And all of us looked around like we were on candid camera. Did he really just say that? Several days later, Philip was given a Bible and told about baptism and all of these sorts of things. And Philip said to us there, as he's clutching the Word of God with white knuckles, mind you, in the midst of China, says to us, when I go back home, I'm going to be cast out by my family when they find out that I've become a Christian. As he's holding the Bible, he says to us, but I will follow Christ if it kills me. The word of God. Parents, Christmas is filled with traditions. Some will bake a birthday cake to Jesus. Some will recount the story of Jesus. Some will tell the Christmas story. Some will take their kids to Christmas Eve services or to church. But nothing can insulate them from sin. It is already on the inside. As much as we would love to think that our children are innocent, their daily lives tell us otherwise. Give them the word of God as early and as often as you can. Teach them how to read it. Learn yourselves how to read it. It's okay if you have questions today. It's not okay if those questions still exist next week. Find out the answers to those questions. You're going to realize that exposes more questions. Find out the answer to those. It's not okay for you to be stagnant in your faith because what you're going to hand off to your children is stagnant faith or no faith at all. Be so well versed in the scriptures that it oozes out of your pores. Then at the table, you just to talk about Jesus is just a regular thing, it's not abnormal. To sit down at bedtime and to talk about stories in the Bible, how to understand those stories and what they mean for us, is just a normal thing. Second thing I would say, our job as a church, particularly as leaders in the church, pastor, staff, our job is to teach the scriptures. You ask yourselves, study the Word of God and ask yourselves, what is the job of the pastor and ministers? 
It is to teach the word of God. It is to train and equip the saints for the work of ministry. Why is that? Because only the word of God can transform a heart. No programs, no structures, none of that. Only the word of God can transform the heart. So our job is to invest as much time as possible into it so that we may be equipped to teach it, to prepare you for it. The church's responsibility is not to pack the pews. The staff, is, their job is not to pack the pews. It's to teach the word of God to God's people. The responsibility of the people in the pew is to attract the crowds. Yes. By going and doing the work of ministry. Amen. By the way, as much as I'm a person in the pulpit, I'm also a person in the pew. So I have my own responsibilities in that regard as well of personal evangelism. But it is our responsibility as individuals to go out and do the work of ministry in the community that you are rightly prepared for by the preaching and teaching of His Word. And as they come in, what they hear is the Gospel proclaimed. What they hear is the Word rightly exposited. What they hear is what God would have us to know from His Word. It is not for us to abuse it or to take it to mean what we want it to mean. So my challenge to you would be to avail yourselves to the many ways that we do that. The many ways that are currently, right now, available to you in our church. We have this, our worship service. Don't neglect that. It's commanded in His Word to not neglect the gathering of the saints. Here we do important things. Worshiping the Lord. Singing praises to His name. Admonishing and building one another up through the singing and through the preaching of the Word. Here you hear teaching and you hear right understanding of the Word, I hope. And you are equipped to go out with the right understanding of a passage and how it applies to your life. But there are other ways. 9.15 starts our Sunday school hour. We have Sunday school classes. We also have building blocks, which have just started recently, which are designed to give you a better understanding, equip you with not just the words in the Scriptures, but also where those things come from, how we understand that, the formulation of the Bible over time. All of those things are given to us, church history. All of those things are very important for reading and understanding rightly the Word of God. Avail yourself of that. Wednesday night, we've been spending the last several weeks, actually several months, going through on Wednesday night the history of the Old Testament, which I think is very beneficial for most people as some of these names they don't even know how to pronounce. So it's good to just hear them read and to understand where all of this comes from and why we can trust the Word of God. The point is, avail yourselves of the many ways where we train and equip the saints for work of ministry through the teaching of His Word, because it's His Word that will transform your hearts and our church will rise and fall on its ability to stand on the word of God where we neglect it where we desire something different than the word of God we have already begun to fail if we are going to be a church that's strong 
that presents to the world around us a compelling argument for following Christ. It's going to be because we revere and honor the Word of God and the Christ found in it. Let's pray. As we do, our deacons are going to come forward and prepare to distribute the Lord's Supper. So deacons, if you could come forward and begin distributing amongst yourselves to be ready to distribute to the people. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be creatures of the Word. That in our homes, in private, we would devour it. We would love it. We would cherish it. We would desire to know more of it. Pray that for myself as much as for anybody else. That we would be creatures of the word. But that for us it would not be strictly academics. But that it would lead to a greater knowledge and appreciation. For who you are. That as we get to know you, the God of the scriptures our hearts would be lit on fire with a passion and a zeal for your kingdom. Our desire as we come in here into the the church building would be to sing as loud and as proud as we possibly can. Not for show, but because we love singing praises to your name so much. Because we see in your scriptures and we know in our own lives how good you have been to us. Pray that you would give us that kind of zeal for your word, but not not just the words on the page, the God that we find behind those words. That's where our real joy would be. And that the words that we study would point us in that direction. We know that only your word can do that. And so we pray for a reverence of your word that is lacking in the society around us. That people would see our lives governed by your word and want to glorify the God of the scriptures. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.